From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Earth Eats, and I'm your host, Kate Young. How to make gravy, how to make mashed potatoes, and it's stuff just real simple that most cookbooks don't have in them because it's just the simple stuff. This week on our show, we hear about a basic cookbook from a bygone era. We have an audio postcard from an expat in Japan at a Thanksgiving-like feast. And Chef Freddy Bitsui from the Mitsutam Cafe and the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C., shares recipes and talks about native cuisines. All that and more coming up in the next hour here on Earth Eats, so stay with us. Earth Eats is produced from the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. We wish to acknowledge and honor the indigenous communities native to this region and recognize that Indiana University is built on indigenous homelands and resources. We recognize the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people as past, present, and future caretakers of this land. Renee Reed is here this week with Earth Eats News. Hi, Renee. Hello, Kate. Dry summers, like many parts of the Midwest saw this year, challenge the corn crop. But farmers have high-tech tools to lessen the impact, including specially bred seeds and soil management practices. A new study has found that as good as the technologies are, they have the downside of minimizing the impacts of climate change. David Lobel of Stanford University led the study. What we've seen with tech, new technologies is more than anything, they help you take advantage of good weather. And so we can't look to technologies to save us from bad weather. The way to prepare for that, he says, is to mitigate climate change. That includes on-farm practices like soil conservation, but must also include broader efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The study appears in the journal Nature Food. New research is looking at how the controversial weed killer dicamba is spreading. This time, research is focused at the molecular level. Researchers at Washington University in St. Louis are examining how dicamba molecularly bonds with other chemicals sprayed at the same time. Some combos might add to the weed killer's drift away from the intended fields. Kimberly Parker is leading the study. She says increasing the knowledge of bonds in dicamba is a first step. Ultimately, The work we're doing to build a better molecular picture, I think, would hopefully improve and inform the design of better chemicals. Parker says more research will be needed to come up with better options for dicamba. Her team's initial findings were published in the journal Environmental Science and Technology. Thanks to Jonathan All and Amy Mayer for those reports. For Earth Eats News, I'm Renee Reed. Though Native American food is the oldest cuisine on the continent, it's only started showing up in glossy food magazines and the high-end restaurant scene in recent years. Chefs like Sean Sherman of The Sioux Chef approach Native cuisine through foraging traditional ingredients and bringing back the foods his Oglala Lakota ancestors may have eaten. Chef Ben Jacobs is a tribal member of the Osage Nation and the co-founder of Takabe, 
Their place is fast, casual Native American food, with two locations in Denver. There is not one Native cuisine. As the executive chef at the cafe in the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C., my guest, Freddie Bitsui, gets that. Fundamentally, what my driving force in my career is all about is to make a pathway for Native cuisine. The museum's cafe is called Mitsutam, which means let's eat in the Native language of the Delaware and Piscataway peoples. The menu is crafted to enhance the museum experience by exposing guests to some of the indigenous cuisines of the Americas and to offer a chance to explore the history of Native foods. But there are so many traditions. Being the chef at a museum for the Native American cultures throughout the Western Hemisphere, it kind of puts a lot on as far as the explanation, the execution, and the presentation of the foods because there is that responsibility of trying to present things that are indigenous to different regions of the country and still having to have a solid story and knowledge of where these dishes come from. If you are not Native American but have attended a powwow, you might be thinking about fry bread. It's a tasty, deep-fried dough made with white flour, often served topped with stewed meats or beans. Though it holds a solid place in many Native food traditions today, Fry bread has its origins in the mid-1800s when Native peoples were forced to rely on government rations of white wheat flour, salt, and water. Fry bread is not a traditional food of the people native to North America. It's more of a culinary adaptive response to oppression. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have a place in contemporary Native cuisine. Chef Freddy Pitsui didn't prepare fry bread during his recent visit to Indiana University but he doesn't shy away from it either. He says he'll address the topic in his forthcoming book. I asked him if he noticed a lot of fusions happening in native cuisines. Oh yeah, for sure. So when we look at how food is made, there has to be a way where, like for example, French cooking. Because I went to culinary school and I was formally trained as a French chef. So. Sometimes what I do when I cook native food is I cook it with the French technique. So inadvertently, that's a fusion in itself. There are some chefs out there who are creating native dishes and native sauces based on French ideas. And there's nothing wrong with that. It, it's, it's just a matter of how you name it, label it, and say where it comes from. Chef Bitsui prepared a few recipes for the small crowd gathered in the basement cafe of the Wells Library on the IU campus. He made calabacitas, a dish from Santa Fe featuring squash, corn, and peppers. He prepared a salad made from swamp cabbage, otherwise known as hearts of palm. Swamp cabbage can still be forged in the wild in parts of Florida and is an historical ingredient in Seminole, Miccosui, and Calusa tribal diets. Chef Bitsui also made a dish featuring roasted pork tenderloin served over a savory bean dish. So this is a three bean ragu. And I know ragu is not a native term, but we in the culinary world have our own little secret code words. So saying ragu means stewed. Stewed beans is something that is pretty much throughout the native world. People will always have a different variation of it. We can get some onions, some celery, and some carrots. Now, if you were a French cook, you would call this mirepoix. Okay, so when you're making this particular dish, you don't want a lot of caramelization happening, okay? Okay, so we're adding the beans. Now you don't want to mix too much because 
your beans are already cooked, all right? These are uh, white beans, kidney beans, and black beans. You can use pintos if you'd like, but don't mix too much because it's gonna, it's just gonna get really mushy. And then I'll start the pork dish. All right, so we have um, some cayenne pepper, some New Mexican chili powder, some cumin, brown sugar, some dried mustard, and dried sage. So all of these flavors kind of blend together and have, uh, form a nice rub. So you're just gonna rub it in. You don't put, I don't put any oil on here because I use the oil in the pan to sear. All right, I apologize if your eyes get watery or you start coughing. Just get all four sides going. And then you put that in a preheated oven at 350. About 20 minutes, 20, 25 minutes. So your stew should be um, stewing up by now. See, this looks really nice. And as you can tell or probably see, I rarely make sauce a priority for, for a lot of the foods that I do because I think it's important to understand that there are some sauces involved with some native foods, but we have to, I have to grow that distinction between what French food is and what native food is. With native food, it's a little different kind of uh, perspective, a little frame of mind. So I try to purposely do without the sauce just to prove a point to people. And I get to tell you, my French chef friends will say, well, there's no sauce. Nobody in the room that day missed the sauce. Samples of all the dishes were passed around for everyone to taste. After the cooking demonstration, I asked him about the role of food. Food does everything. Food can comfort. Food can bring people together. Food can even bring family together. And most families don't like spending time together. And if food can do that, trust me, it, it can do a lot. But in all seriousness, food is actually, I think, the main conduit of storytelling, especially indigenous food. And I'm not referring to indigenous culture. I'm talking about the foods that are indigenous to certain areas of the world. Not just the U.S. alone, but throughout the world, because that's where that particular ingredient is from. That ingredient will always tell the story. And as long as that story is there, it becomes a part of people's culture. Food really has this power. Chef Freddie Bitsui was a guest of the IU Bloomington Arts and Humanities Council as part of Indiana Remixed. We have his bean ragu recipe on our website, eartheats.org. Men have long dominated the farming world. So, not surprisingly, farm equipment, things like tractors, tillers, or hand tools, are designed to be used by male farmers. Female-friendly tools are hard to come by, and as Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin reports, with more women farming every year, that presents a safety issue. Dusty Spurgeon has a love-hate relationship with her tractor. She helps run Spurgeon Veggies, a small vegetable farm in Rio, Illinois, along with her mother-in-law. As a woman-owned and operated business, one of the biggest hurdles they face is the equipment they farm with. Starting with the tractor. Tractors are often used to pull different implements for plowing, for planting, or for harvesting. Switching those out is not easy. You often need a lot of upper body strength. You are pushing this thing forward to fit it onto that, that part, and then you have to get it all the way on, which is really freaking hard. <laughs> Frustrating. Spurgeon uses that word over and over again. I hate it. I hate it. It makes me feel incompetent. It, like I can't do my job. 
It's not just changing the implements on the tractor. It's everything about the way the tractor is designed. She finds the parking brake almost impossible to engage. The fuel tank is located at the top of the tractor, meaning she has to lift a heavy fuel can up above her head to gas up. The tractor also has a safety bar that needs to be up in case it flips. It's a very heavy bar. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Spurgeon says she's lucky that she's taller and stronger than the average woman. If you were a five foot one woman trying to like put the the roll bar thing up or like or change out the PTO or whatever, I don't know that it would be possible <laughs> to do without like the pretty major potential for injury. Many of these features are hard for everyone to use. Spurgeon is the first to admit that. But women are at a particular disadvantage, says Josie Rudolphy, who researches agricultural safety and health at the University of Illinois. These were designed for, um, you know, people of a certain weight and certain height, pretty much reflective of, of the male population in the United States. She says farming is already a dangerous job, and for women, the potential for injury is high. So some are stepping in to help. Ann Adams and Liz Brensinger own Green Heron Tools, which has trademarked the term hergonomic. Their tools, designed for women, are generally lighter, have patented grips to accommodate smaller hands, and come in a variety of sizes. Adams and Brensinger are farmers themselves and got frustrated with the lack of female-friendly tools on the market. I mean, there were companies that painted crappy tools pink and called them ladies' tools, but we couldn't find a single case of tools or equipment in the ag sector that had been scientifically designed to work well for women. Brensinger says women have always played an important role on the farm, and that role only continues to grow. According to the most recent USDA Ag Census data, about 36 percent of all farmers are female, and that number has been steadily increasing for the past decade. To have women playing this important role and having to use tools and equipment that don't fit them, that, you know, aren't going to work as well for them as they need something to, and that might actually hurt them, there's just something really wrong with that picture. She says this is a public health and safety issue, and until female-friendly tools are more widely available, farmers like Dusty Spurgeon will continue to put their bodies at risk to accomplish everyday farm tasks. I'm Dana Cronin, Harvest Public Media. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. After a short break, we have a conversation about learning to cook from an unusual source. Stay with us. How did you learn to cook? Did you learn to cook? Not all of us know how to cook. Some of us can boil spaghetti, fry an egg, warm up food in the microwave, and that's about the extent of it. Some of us were taught by parents or grandparents, home economics classes, YouTube, cooking shows, and some of us even have formal training. Last fall, a friend of mine told me about a conversation she was privy to at a meeting in Lawrence County, Indiana. It's in Southern Indiana. They were talking about home cooking and how people learn to cook. I think the meeting, uh, we're trying to get people back to um, realizing that's how they, that's what they need to do is be cooking at home and that it's not that hard it can be simple, and trying to figure out ways to reach people. That's Michelle Porter. 
resident in Lawrence County all my life, and right now I'm a Bono Township trustee. And you say you've lived there your whole life? When I got married, uh, be 48 years ago, we lived out at Orange County Leap Sick for two years, and then we moved back. So I've always lived in, except for those two years, always lived in Bono Township. So you've been realizing maybe some of the people in your township aren't, uh, are, are needing those cooking skills or... No, I think IU actually called this meeting, and they just invited all the trustees, and I went. Um, Actually, most of the people in Bono Township actually are country folk, and they do cook. (laughs) Okay. So, you know. And in that conversation, Michelle mentioned a cookbook. When I got married, it would be 48 years ago next month, Lee Hamilton sent me this. It's called A Family Fair, A Guide to Good Nutrition Cookbook, and it has just real simple recipes in it that tells you how to make gravy how to make mashed potatoes, and it's stuff just real simple that most cookbooks don't have in them because it's just the simple stuff. Okay, so some of the basics that... Basics. Other cookbooks might assume you already know how to make gravy, so they might not put a recipe in there or mashed potatoes, but you're saying this has all those basics. Yeah, it has your basics. When I heard about this cookbook, that she got it in the mail as a wedding gift from her congressman... I wanted to talk to her. My friend Julia put us in touch. And so when you got this cookbook, did you already know how to cook? Not a lot. I used it a lot when I got it, when I first got it. Yeah. No, I didn't know. My mom cooked all the time, and we had to do the dishes. But she didn't really. uh, We lived on a farm, and she was out with the pigs, and she was out on the tractor. And so when she came in, she cooked it. We had to do the dishes. So she didn't really take the time to teach us a lot about cooking. We did the dishes. So you weren't invited in to, to help out? Not, not, help out. <laughs> no, peeled potatoes, but not really on the cooking part, yeah. Yeah. So it's a book that you ended up using a lot. Oh, I did. Yes, I did. I used it a lot. Did you, how did you, what did you think when you first got it in the mail? I don't really remember. <laughs> like, 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 were you surprised? Did you think it was yeah. a strange thing for your congressman to send you? Yes. Yes. I'm sure I did think that because, you know, I never dreamed about him sending me a free cookbook. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. And you think they just sent it out to every every married couple? I don't know. Uh, one of my friends that's never been married, uh, it's five years older than me, she said she got one. But now I, I asked on Facebook the other day if anyone else, you know, had got one and nobody else answered me. So I don't know how they picked who got them. I really don't. Well, what are some of the recipes that you've tried? Uh, Probably like the mashed potatoes and just how to do gravy and a lot of your basic stuff. I used it a lot to know how long to cook meat. Mm -hmm. There's tables in there for how long to cook meat to know when it's done. Mm -hmm. So I used it a lot for that. You can see it's pretty getting pretty ratty. But uh, yeah, I used it a lot when I got married. See, there's a biscuits recipe. So... Just a lot of the basic stuff. Now, are you the kind of person who will make notes in your cookbooks and your recipes and stuff about like, oh, you know? I will, but you know, I I didn't in this, so I guess I didn't tweak it any. Uh-huh. I probably wasn't as comfortable tweaking then as I am now. Yeah. So this was kind of something you you relied on when you were younger, and yes. then as you got more comfortable, maybe you had some other yeah. cookbooks or yeah, and I didn't use it so much, but I did when I first got it. I used it a lot. So, yeah, I see it's got, um, it doesn't just have recipes. It starts with a, a whole section on nutrition. Yes. So there's a guide to, to good nutrition, 
And then serving by serving, foods provide for daily needs. And then it's got a whole breakdown of like different foods you could eat, like milk, and then how much protein, how much calcium, how much of these different vitamins. That's interesting. Yeah, it is. And then some stuff about servings. And then shopping, smart buying. Okay. It's really pretty interesting. Different types of poultry, vegetables, and then a whole thing about storing food. This is great. Yeah, and that was helpful, too, on the storing food. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it just gives you some ideas for what needs to be refrigerated, what can be held at room temperature. Mm-hmm. Store in a cool room away from bright light. That's your onions, your potatoes, your rutabaga, and your squash and sweet potatoes. Okay. <laughs> Some substitutions. A whole yeah, thing and that's, about... that's very helpful when you don't carry a lot of stuff, you know. So in place of double-acting baking powder, you could use two teaspoons of quick-acting baking powder plus a quarter teaspoon of baking soda. Plus sour milk or buttermilk. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I probably used that one where you can add vinegar to the milk and make it sour for persimmon pudding. I probably used that as much as anything. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. So for buttermilk, you can add lemon juice or uh, vinegar. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I've used that a lot. Now, is the... Um, okay, so then there's a whole thing about just kind of meal planning. It looks like some different ideas for main dishes... Oh, okay. Now we're getting into the recipes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So did you say there's a persimmon pudding in here? I don't know if there is or I don't think there is, but I just, I always looked in there to find out when I made my persimmon pudding. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, and then there's a whole section at the end of ways to use leftovers. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And then some cooking terms, bake, barbecue, based, marinade, parboil. That's great. It's just kind of pretty neat overall. Our friend Julia got in touch with Lee Hamilton's office to ask about Michelle's wedding gift from the 70s. And surprisingly, they sent Julia a cookbook. I showed it to Michelle. Oh, and that's not anything like what I have. No. Nothing at all. This one is called Nancy Hamilton's Indiana Family Cookbook. And so hers, it's just different recipes, and then she has a little note at the end of all of them, like baked spaghetti. Lee's mother made this, is her little note at the end. Yeah, this is just like little almost recipe cards, and they're really short. Dump cake. Chocolate lover's dream. <laughs> oh, I love dump cakes. Yeah. What do you consider to be a dump cake? We need to dump it in there. Well, I, I started out seeing uh, Paula Deans, and she always started out with um, like a can of crushed pineapple and then your pie filling. And then your dry cake mix, and then a stick and a half of butter on the top. Huh. The pineapple's on the bottom? Uh-huh. And then you flip it over? No? No. Oh, okay. Interesting. No. Well, this one includes a box of German chocolate cake mix. Oh. <laughs> so that, that cuts some corners there. And then it's got some... See, your dry cake pudding. mix makes your crumble for the top. When you, you can melt your butter, and when you melt your butter and spread it over... Your dry cake mix, that makes like a crumble topping mm. for whatever you put under it. Oh, I do a caramel apple one, too, that's good. Take two cans of apple pie filling, drizzle caramel on it, and then put a yellow cake mix and melted butter. And then if you want two pecans, it's pretty good on that, too. Oh, okay. And that's really easy. And so 
You're not really mixing up the, the no, cake No, you don't mix. mix it up. You just um, put some butter, mix it with some butter, or put mm-hmm. butter on top of just it. Just melt butter and drizzle it over the top, yeah. Paula Dean's the first one I ever heard of doing it. They're really good. They're really easy. You just dump it in there. That's why it's called a dump cake. Yeah. yeah. So but you just dump it in the pan. Like yeah, you're not in your 9.5 by 11, yeah. So you don't even have to use a bowl. Don't have to dirty no. up a bowl. No. Okay, so... This, the family fair, a guide to good nutrition that you received mm-hmm. when you got married. And now when was this? This is 1971. Okay. This comes from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Yes. And it's a home and garden bulletin number one. It was revised in May of 1970, mm-hmm. and it's from Washington, D.C. Yes. Okay. So this came to you maybe through... Lee Hamilton, but it's from it's from D.C. Yes. Okay. Well, that makes a little more sense of why when Julia got in touch, they mentioned this, uh-huh. or they sent her this, because they probably thought it was the Hamilton cookbook that she mm-hmm. was talking about. So can you think of any, any dishes in here that you made more than once or that you kind of was a go-to for you? You said mashed potatoes. Well, uh, the macaroni and cheese... I'll have to admit I tried the cherry pie uh, after we got married and burn it. That wasn't too good of a deal. <laughs> um, it's been so long since I've used it, I don't really remember. See, there's a boiling guide for fresh vegetables, so you'll know when they're done. Mm-hmm. French toast. My mom never made French toast, so I did learn how to make French toast out of this. Yeah, see, there's a roasting guide in here. Okay. So it tells you how long to roast stuff, and it may be on the page before, too. And that way you know how long to cook meat that it's done. So even if you don't have a thermometer to find right. out. You My can... mom never had a thermometer to, to roast meat. She always just, yeah. So do you have kids? I have a daughter. And does she like to cook? She does, and she's a very good cook. Yeah. Um, have, you, have you shown her this cookbook? I actually gave that to her, and she used it for a while, and then she gave it back after she she's more internet you know she'll look stuff up on the internet yeah yeah but so she gave it back to you yeah (laughs) do you think she used it at all for any yeah i think she used it some and are there any recipes that you would maybe pass down to her or even just instructions that you got from this Mm, probably i've already done that um now when i make gravy my mother-in-law taught me how to make gravy but my daughter, Natasha, she follows a recipe to make gravy. And she makes good gravy, but I just dump it in there. Okay, so <laughs> tell me how you make gravy. I think one of the main things is is to use a fork or a, a whisk. You can't use a spoon. Okay. And so just however much butter, or I always like bacon grease, you have in the skillet, my sprinkle flour in it until it's, I just kind of eyeball it. Uh-huh. And then salt and pepper it and stir it till it's got all of your butter or your bacon grease absorbed. Uh-huh. And then I just pour milk in it and just keep stirring till it gets thick. Okay. And do you have to pour it slowly? Or no, just... I just dump it in there. Okay. <laughs> and then you, you're whisking it with your fork or your whisk uh-huh. until it thickens yeah. up. Yep. Now, my mom always browned it. You know, she always waited till the flour got brown, but I don't do that. I just stir it up. And is that just a preference if you like that? That uh, nutty brown f- flavor or not? I think maybe I just don't want to wait as long. <laughs> well, I just want to thank you so much, Michelle. Well, thank you for having me. That was Michelle Porter. 
talking about a cookbook she received as a wedding gift in 1971 from then Indiana Congressman Lee Hamilton. From my limited research since this conversation, it seems that the booklet was frequently distributed from the offices of U.S. senators and representatives, not just Lee Hamilton, from the 1950s through at least the 1970s. In an eBay search, I came across a letter enclosed in one of the copies from a congressman in the state of Washington, saying he knew the recipient was a bride-to-be based on a newspaper announcement about a marriage license application. He went on to say that he had a limited number of these booklets to give away from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So perhaps not all married women received them, just a select few. You can see an image of that letter on our website, eartheats.org. My mom's basic cookbook was a Betty Crocker one with a red and white hardcover, and it was a three-ring binder type. I can remember studying that cookie section very carefully as a child. And I have a version of that one that I still occasionally reference. The cookbook I started out with as an adult was the Moosewood Cookbook by Molly Katzen. Perfect for the 20-something vegetarian activist. I made my first loaf of bread from that book. Homemade pasta, Hungarian mushroom soup, hummus. It was a great start. Now my go-to basic cookbook is Mark Bittman's How to Cook Everything. It usually lives up to its name. I'd love to hear from you. What's your reference cookbook? Joy of Cooking? Is it a Google search? Epicurious? Also, how did you learn to cook? From whom did you learn to cook? Are you still learning to cook? Drop me an email, eartheats at gmail.com, or send us a message through Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, at eartheats. After a short break, we'll hear from a guy named Rocky who learned how not to cook from his mom. Stay with us. Thanksgiving is approaching. This year, it's going to be different for many of us who celebrate. If you're used to traveling to see friends and family or hosting a big meal at your home, it might feel strange to scale back this year, to stay home. Maybe you're even spending the day entirely alone. Well, in honor of the weirdness that is 2020, we have a story from our friend David Gann in Saitama, Japan. You might remember him from his office cooking session on a previous episode, or if you listen to the radio locally, you might have heard an Earth Eats promotion with his voice. David is speaking with his friend Rocky, another expat living in Japan, about an annual Thanksgiving dinner he puts together. This was recorded in 2019, when it was safe to gather in small spaces, cooking and talking together without face masks. Here's David Gann with his audio postcard. This is David Gann, the office cooker you've heard in a previous episode. I'm today at the home of Rocky Burton in Nishin City, Saitama. So we've been doing this about once a year now. I was over here one year ago for the last uh, dinner that Rocky prepared. And I'm going to ask you a few questions about your history in cooking. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, so uh, first of all, how long have you been in Japan? Uh, it's been about seven and a half, going on eight years now. 
And how did you first get interested in cooking? Were you interested in cooking back in the States? Oh, absolutely. I've been um, cooking for as, well, about as long as I can remember. Um, a story I always like to tell, and my mother's going to kill me for this, but I always like to say that my mother was a terrible cook when I was growing up. Uh, everything that she made was, uh, was burned. She said she liked it that way. She, she cooked all of her hamburger black. She liked it burned. All of her chicken black. She said she liked it burned. And so eventually, I just had to learn to do it for myself. So, um, I also had a really good home ec teacher in high school. This is uh, Joanne Robbins. I took her classes a couple of times. And we practiced making a whole lot of pastries and uh, a couple of more healthy meals. That's basically where it all came from. All right, well, how many of these uh, Thanksgiving dinners have you had in the past? I think this is my third or fourth time around. The first couple of times were a little bit easier, I think. They were much smaller affairs, just at maximum it was like six or seven people. But starting from last year, we started to have larger groups. We had like 15 or 20 last year. You've got a really incredible... Uh array of uh, dishes prepared for today and we're gonna look at the the list correction I have a huge list of dishes planned what is going to be prepared is going to be a fraction of that even if it's a fraction it's amazing Rocky you just cannot get food like this um, in Japan very easily and that brings me to my next question how do you get all these materials and in the beginning did, what what kind of uh, difficulties did you have in procuring these these items the beginning was easier they were much smaller dishes and um, more simple items um, for the the bigger items the turkey the stuffing the gravy you have to go out to Hiroo area out in Tokyo that's where most of the wealthy foreign executives live I suppose you could put it that's uh, they got international markets out there so that's the only place where I can really find any turkey Unless I want to go out to a Costco and get an entire whole bird, which I cannot cook in my small setting. But the most difficult thing for me to find is uh, baking items. Baking items. Um, like what? Powdered sugar is impossible to find. Powdered sugar? Powdered sugar. Wow. Um, you can find them at uh, the Caldi, the small-time international store. Sure. But those are only in really small packages of like 75 grams or so. But um, I had to send out for larger packages. I got this one package here. I, it looks like uh, 500 grams. So what I did, I hopped on Amazon, ordered like four or five bags of those. And I've been keeping those for as long as I can. Uh, sometimes you have to stretch your ingredients. And uh, between you and me, keep them a little bit past their expiration dates. <laughs> well, it's excellent. Well, how about this uh, cranberry sauce you're making over here? This looks like something that might be difficult to find in a store. You can find canned cranberry sauce, and as a matter of fact, it reminds me I have one can left. But um, the, cran the canned cranberry sauce is, to me, only a garnish. Uh, the stuff you get in the can, the jellied stuff, that is traditionally put on a plate on the center of the kitchen table and then picked at. People put it on their plates, and then they throw it away. That's how you eat the canned cranberry sauce. <laughs> what a waste. No, that's what it's used for. <laughs> it's just for coloring on your plate. But the real cranberry sauce, you have to make it at home. You have to cook it yourself. Now, you cannot 
find cranberries in Japan anywhere except for at Costco. And even then, there's a small window of time of like maybe two, maybe three weeks when it's available seasonally. And so I uh, will occasionally swing by the Costco after work on Fridays and um, see if they've got any in stock. Around about end of October, beginning of November or so. I'm looking at the list of the various things, including eggnog you've got on here. I'll just go down the list and you please uh, just rap a little bit about some of the various things you've yeah. got going. And I can tell you what I, what I have made, what I am going to make, what I'm abandoning. Okay. First of all, we have deviled eggs. It's in the process. I'm making those. Um, I need to get the eggs in the pots within the next couple of minutes if we're going to have any. Okay. Cheese ball flavor to be announced. What is going to be the flavor this time? Uh, that is going to be a chocolate chip cheese ball. Wow. Chocolate chips, another thing you really can't find in, in supermarkets regularly. So what I do is I just go out and get a bunch of chocolate bars for really cheap and just chop them up or uh, hammer them and do what I can with them. Pumpkin hummus. Now this does sound interesting. Pumpkin hummus is actually pretty easy. You can find pureed pumpkin sauce at the Caldi, that supermarket that I told you about. Garlic whipped mashed potatoes and gravy. Man, that sounds great. Those are done. The mashed potatoes are done. They're on the table now. Gravy will be forthcoming after just a couple of minutes. That seems like a, uh, it's a lower tier item. It's easier to get around to. That takes like, shoot, 10 minutes. Gravy's not really a very common thing in Japan, is it? Well, I mean, not the brown gravy, not the turkey gravy that uh, we're most familiar with, but um, you can find ingredients at a various number of places. I went up to the international market in Hiro, uh, where I got my turkey from, and I got a couple of packages of the sim simple uh, short stuff, but I decided this year just go for a large canister. I got a giant canister of about uh, 240 grams of brown gravy mix and that's going to be the easiest way to get it all together. I mean, I'd love to make my gravy from scratch using just drippings from uh, a, a roasted turkey breast or a whole bird if I could, but I mean, let's be honest, I got enough work. It, it looks like it. Uh, this next one is a traditional dish that everyone in America loves, macaroni and cheese. I was a little surprised to see it on here because it's such a simple and basic one, but I imagine you do something special with it, don't you? Well, this one's going to be baked. It'll be a baked macaroni and cheese if the oven will be free in time. I have easily uh, five or ten baked items that are on my list to get to before I get to the mac and cheese, but uh, if I can free up the space, just bake it up, cover it with some breadcrumbs or something like that, yeah, that'll make it a little bit special. Well, we're moving on to the entrees now. And I see you've got pumpkin and mushroom risotto. Mmm. That's what I'm working on right now. I'm chopping up the pumpkin and uh, tossing a little bit of sage. This is something that I used to make um, when I took a short time as a vegan diet. So this one can be made vegan today. I, we don't have any vegan guests, so that saves me a bit of effort. So I'll just toss in some chicken stock. 
Moving on to dessert, you're making cookies. What kind of cookies are you making? We got some chocolate chip uh, cookie dough that's been in the fridge overnight, so all those flavors should be married by now. And um, with whatever time we have left with the oven, because it's only a small, single rack oven, I'll make some gingerbread and hopefully some peanut butter. Finally on the list that you put on your website, you've got boozy brownies. Boozy brownies. I love me some boozy brownies. What kind of booze are you putting in those brownies? First you make the brownies based on the mix or from scratch, and then you just pour on about a quarter cup of bourbon. That should steam and dry up after just a moment. It'll be absorbed into the brownie itself. And then I'll cover it up with a little bit of rum and I think cream cheese frosting. Wow, I can't wait. I'm I'm more about the I'm more about the drink today. I'm all about the the apple cider that Rocky made, uh, spiked with some uh, rum, and the eggnog, which I think he probably prepared two days before. Because uh, last year when he made this, uh, there was a real strong ethanol flavor, but today it's 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 very uh, <laughs> it's very smooth. So I've been imbibing in the drink more than I have the food. So. My kudos to Rocky for making uh, making these wonderful drinks today. I don't think he's paying attention. Because <laughs> it's just a reminder of what you have that are non-material goods. Um, and, and for me, you know, friendship is much more important. Yeah, to me, like Rocky creates a space where you can enjoy something festive, which um, in Japan is really unusual. For kind of us expats out here that you know, don't maybe have many opportunities to interact with family, um, it's, it really means a lot. So I think we should all say cheers and thanks to Rocky and Rin. Cheers. cheers. And, and if you have friends who cook, you should look after them. <laughs> The favorite has definitely got to be the turkey. No, <laughs> no, no. Yeah, the, the, I think um, everything has gone down really well, as we can see here, where there's no, no food left. Well, there's a lot of food left, but yeah, it's all gone down very well. The risotto was very good, and the guacamole chicken breast was very good. And the bread was very, very, very good. The bread looks like chicken. Yeah. But yeah, overall, fantastic. And again, thanks to Rocky and Rin for putting this together. Yeah. I think I heard cranberry sauce, macaroni and cheese, something with pumpkin in it. So yeah, a nod to a traditional Thanksgiving meal. Thanks so much to David Gann for that audio postcard from Saitama Prefecture in Japan. The coronavirus pandemic has wreaked havoc on the meat industry, with some slaughterhouses and processing plants temporarily closing down earlier this year. Some Midwestern states are using federal COVID stimulus money to help small meat processors increase capacity. Harvest Public Media's Jonathan All reports those plans are off to a slow start. Larkin Busby is the L in DL Farms, 
She and her husband grow vegetables and raise beef, pork, and chicken on their 168-acre organic farm 90 miles southwest of St. Louis. Busby says after the coronavirus spread to the area, she got bad news from her meat processors. We have been told that the earliest processing date for us is spring of 2022. Busby says she had to scramble to find a patchwork of processors who were willing to do the minimum necessary for her farm to stay afloat. This is a common story in the Midwest for small processors, the ones that employ 50 or fewer people. Even after the big plants reopened, the backlog on small operations was still there. States like Missouri and Oklahoma are trying to help. A combination of state and federal efforts have led to millions of dollars being granted to very small meat processors, helping them add machines, space, and people. Jennifer Lutz is a community engagement specialist with the University of Missouri Extension. She says small processors are excited about the opportunity. They are all hoping to expand capacity, and that is their goal. And so we kind of have to get this equipment in and see how much things change. But that process is slow. The grant programs are reimbursements, so the processors have to front the money for expansion. That means very small businesses with little capital are taking out loans and applying for grants. Scott Long is one of the processors who took the federal money. He owns Kabul Country Meats, a 10-employee operation in south-central Missouri. He says he's ready to add capacity, but can't find anyone to take the four jobs the new equipment created. But we've had some that's quit, too. It wasn't their cup of tea. Slaughtering or processing beef is not something for everybody, as you can imagine. It takes a special type of individual to do that. Long also says what he calls generous unemployment benefits discourages people from taking the jobs that start at $10 an hour but go as high as 16 Advocates for rural areas and small meat processing businesses say pay, training, and education are the biggest hurdles to filling these jobs. Megan Filbert works for Practical Farmers of Iowa, an advocacy group, and also raises sheep on her farm. She says the real hang-up in the labor market is the image of butchers as a profession. Universities and community colleges should offer artisanal butchery courses, which we're seeing some of that, but open that up to not just students, like college-age students, but the general public. Filbert says better local butchers will mean better local meat, which will lead to a more thriving small processing industry. But she also says that will take time. Filbert says the effort would be more successful if small meat processors had a few years to increase capacity. The government is pushing for the changes in a few months because of COVID concerns. All of this effort to improve the capacity for small processors probably won't have much effect on meat prices and supply. Pat Westoff is an agricultural economist with the University of Missouri. He says even with expanded capacities, small processors are, well, still small. There's only so much they can do right now. So until you have a lot more of them, which doesn't seem to be in the cards right now, uh, there's not much that's going to change in the near term. They're still relying on the big packing plants to get things done. While that was the impetus for some of the grant programs, it may not be the real goal or outcome. Jennifer Lutz with Missouri Extension says the COVID-fueled high prices and meat shortage got people to think differently about meat. But also it has encouraged consumers to go out and seek local sources that they may or may not have been aware of previously. And Lutz says if COVID and the grant programs create a more vibrant local meat processing industry, that will be good for rural communities, farmers, and the food supply chain as a whole.
Jonathan All, Harvest Public Media. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. With the winter holidays approaching, some of us have pie on the mind. This summer, I shared my recipe for galettes. They're a rustic, free-form pie where you skip the pie pan and simply fold your pie pastry around the fruit filling, leaving an open middle. I appreciate their simplicity and the way they maximize crunchy pie crust edges and avoid the dreaded soggy bottom of juicy fruit pies. It's so easy. Here are the steps. Make the pie dough in the morning, and we have a recipe and instructions for that on eartheats.org. Wrap it in plastic and stick it in the fridge to chill for several hours. Mix the berries with sugar and maybe some cornstarch. You can mash them up, slice them, or keep them whole. Preheat the oven to 450 degrees. Then roll out the chilled dough into a rough circle. Transfer it to a baking sheet. Pile the berries and sugar mixture in the middle and fold the edges of the pastry over the circle of fruit, leaving at least half of it exposed. Then brush the pastry with milk or cream, sprinkle sugar over it, and bake it in a preheated 450 degree oven for 15 minutes. Reduce the heat to 375 and bake another 15 or 20 minutes or until the crust is a deep golden brown. Allow to cool for 15 minutes or so before serving with a scoop of vanilla ice cream or whipped cream. Make two, so you can share one with someone who could really use the comfort of pie right now. These instructions are for berries. For apple or pear, just toss the fresh cut fruit with sugar and cinnamon. Find details at eartheats.org. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. The Earth Eats team includes Aobon Binder, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Josephine McRobbie, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Freddie Bitsui, Michelle Porter, David Gann, Rocky Burton, and everyone at Rocky and Wren's Dinner. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Thank you.